Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. In our third season, we'll explore investing in a post-pandemic world. After a year and a half of COVID-19 dominating nearly every investment conversation, vaccine rollouts are now well underway and the global economy is recovering at a much faster pace than following past recessions. But as we emerge from the pandemic bunker, the financial landscape looks very different from when we went in. In this season, we take a wide-angle lens to the investment environment to discuss economic trends and long-term themes in markets and how COVID-19 has shaped them. Over the course of a dozen episodes, we'll speak with experts on a variety of topics in an attempt to provide some insight on investing for a post-pandemic world. After several inflation reports showing consumer prices rising at their fastest pace in three decades, investors are asking themselves how to position portfolios for a higher inflation environment. While we expect some of this inflation surge to abate as supply chain issues eventually settle down, more sustainable drivers of inflation are picking up. Assuming some of the recent surge in inflation sticks around, even a modest twill towards a normalisation of monetary policy could lead to significantly higher interest rates. This may leave us with a different set of winners and losers, and particularly the outlook for fixed income looks increasingly challenged. Could alternative investments be just the alternative investors need? Of course, alternatives encompass a wide variety of investments, so to help us break this down and discuss opportunities in this space, I'm very glad to be joined today by David Liebowitz. David is a global market strategist here at JP Morgan Asset Management and is the author and architect of our Guide to Alternatives. So David, welcome to Insights Now. Thanks for having me. Investors have been increasingly focused on alternatives, but for many people, this is unfamiliar territory. Before we dive in, can you talk a little bit about how you think about investing in alternatives and how that differs from traditional stocks and bonds? Absolutely. So, you know, it, it's interesting because for a lot of investors who have traditionally focused on traditional stocks and bonds, diversification means spreading things out and, and, and you know, on the equity side, putting a little bit in, in large cap growth, a little bit in small cap value, a little bit in mid cap core, and then kind of calling it a day and, and saying you're diversified. The, the same is true uh, when it comes to, to fixed income, a little bit more challenging given the broader interest rate environment, which is a, something I know we're going to uh, going to discuss here today. But when it comes to alternatives, you know, we really advocate for an outcome-based approach. And, and what that entails is rather than taking your chips and spreading them broadly across the board, it's much more about figuring out what the problem is you're trying to solve or what the challenge in your portfolio is that you're trying to address, and then backing into the solution or the asset class that will provide that intended solution. And so if your goal is diversification, if your goal is income, well, owning something like private equity isn't going to fit the bill. You'd be much better off owning something like real estate or infrastructure. But on the other hand, if your goal is to enhance your overall rate of return, you know, a, a macro hedge fund may not be the best solution. Maybe private equity or, or distressed investing on the on the credit side may be better for getting you to where you want your portfolio to, to be. And so, you know, again, in sharp contrast to the approach that we see people take when it comes to traditional stocks and bonds, we think step one when it comes to alternatives is is figuring out the problem you're trying to solve. And then again, backing into the asset which will, uh, which will provide that intended solution. Well, let's just focus on the bond side here. So interest rates are obviously still very low, um, but it is consensus and it is also our opinion that interest rates ought to rise from here, given A, what's going on with inflation and B, the fact that real interest rates are already so low. Now, this should make for a very bleak environment for fixed income. And when people talk about the traditional 60-40 portfolio, a lot of people are really concerned right now about that 40%. 
Could alternatives be a, a solution to this? And are there specific types that are more effective than others when it comes to generating income and providing some protection against inflation? So we, we do think that a, a role alternatives can play in portfolios is to address some of the challenges that, that we believe fixed income assets are going to face here um, going forward. You know, I think most people are familiar with the concept that when, when interest rates rise, bond prices fall. And, and given the current level of interest rates, it would make sense for investors to be a little bit worried uh, about what could happen here over the course of the next couple of years. And so uh, we very much do believe alternatives can provide a solution to this, this interest rate dynamic, this interest rate conundrum. But you know, as you noted, and, and as I kind of hinted at in, in the first uh, part of our conversation here today, very different, you know, certain types of alternatives uh, are going to provide this solution uh, rather than all alternatives. And so when we think about the types of alternatives that will provide both income and diversification and, and inflation protection, which I know is where we're going to get to in, in this conversation in just a little bit, um, we tend to gravitate away from things like private equity, we tend to gravitate away from things like hedge funds uh, and private credit and really focus more on, on core real assets. Now, core real assets is a very large universe. Um, people are most familiar with real estate. You know, the, the private real estate investment space has been around on the institutional side since the late 1970s. Uh, it's long been a darling of the institutional investment community. But what we've seen over the course of the past couple of years is significant growth in the opportunity set within that, that real assets universe more broadly. And we're seeing a lot of investors move into things like infrastructure, transportation, uh, even things like, like timber, um, which is something that you know we're, we've seen a lot of people express interest in um, as of late. And so when we think about the opportunity to diversify, to generate income, and to generate inflation protection in portfolios, again, we think core real assets broadly very much fit the bill, but the devil is, is always in the details. And you know the way that these different types of assets provide inflation protection, provide income, and can interact with the rest of your portfolio is going to be very different. And so, you know, honing in on the way that these assets interact with the, the traditional stocks and bonds is really of the utmost importance from a portfolio construction perspective. So, so let's okay. So let's go through this sort of a piece at a time. Let, let's focus in on real estate here. Um, what are we seeing in real estate, given the shifting demand patterns uh, as this pandemic winds down? I mean, it seems that people don't want office space while demand for housing is remarkably high. But obviously, there are a lot of different types of real estate. So what are you thinking about real estate right now? So real, real estate is an interesting one because in our view, um, the pandemic didn't really bring any new trends into play, but it very much accelerated trends that were already in place. And so I think it makes sense to, to take this sector by sector within the real estate space. And so if we start uh, with office, which I think is front of mind for most individuals as we transition back to the workplace, um, the office isn't dead. You know, if you look at the composition of the U.S. economy, we, we have far more going on on the service side of the equation than we do on the manufacturing side. And if you think about a services business, its most valuable capital is its human capital. And the best way to develop human capital is vis-a-vis in-person interaction. And so the, the office isn't dead. We, we will go back to work. We are going back to work. But what people require from their office is very much going to change. And we think we're going to see more collaborative space. We're going to see technological enhancements. Because again, these are going to be areas where people go to, to interact with one another, as opposed to places where 
where people go to sit in a cubicle by themselves uh, and tap away in Excel for, for hours at a time. If we move on to retail, which was under significant pressure before the pandemic, one of the things that, that we've noticed in the retail space, and we actually illustrate this in our guide to alternatives, um, is that retail has been under pressure, but a very specific type of retail has been under pressure. And, you know, broadly speaking, there has been growth in the number of retail establishments in the United States over the past decade, but that growth has really been dominated by service providing retail establishments as opposed to goods providing retail establishments. And so us, so, so to us, the, the real key to success here when it comes to investing in the retail space is focusing on that tenant mix, right? Thinking about a place where you might go to, to hit the gym, have lunch with a friend, and maybe stop at the grocery store on your way out, uh, as, a, as opposed to a place where you go to buy a three-pack of white button-down shirts, uh, which everybody can now do very easily online. Uh, if we think about industrial, which has very much benefited at the expense of retail over the course of the past couple of years, the wind is very much at the back of the industrial sector. But I, I think that you know the the Amazon effect, going and buying warehouses, that that's old news. You know, we're more interested in where the opportunities will exist in the infrastructure uh, sector going forward. I'm sorry, in the industrial sector going forward. And, and to us, it's things like data centers. It's things like transportation hubs, right? The first derivative of the Amazon effect is a need to move goods around to get from warehouse to warehouse. And so we want to own those types of arteries. Uh, and furthermore, when we think about you know a hybrid working environment and doing more digitally, broadband and digital infrastructure is of the utmost importance. And that leaves us with multifamily housing. And, and multifamily really took, took kind of a round trip uh, during the pandemic. Uh, you know, Vacancy rates were very low uh, leading up to the pandemic. They then spiked sharply as individuals left cities. Uh, and clearly, there has been a shift in, in housing preferences, particularly amongst, amongst um, some, of the, uh, some of the older mem members of the millennial cohort. But you know, you've also seen those vacancy rates come right back down as economies have reopened. And so you know, we think that that was more of a temporary blip. And given that cities have been able to get back on their feet uh, relatively swiftly here, you know, we do think that the multifamily housing and the apartment space uh, will continue to be an opportunity over the course of the coming years. Thanks. Well, that's a really great overview of what's going on in real estate. But can we talk about some other real assets when rethinking this 40% here? Absolutely. So I would say that there are really three other areas of the real asset universe that it's worth focusing on. Um, the first is infrastructure. And for a lot of clients who have invested in real estate historically, infrastructure is a great first step into the rest of the real assets universe. Now, when we think about infrastructure, we tend to break it into three separate pieces. You have regulated assets, you have contracted assets, and you have GDP sensitive assets. And so, you know, regulated assets, contracted assets, these are things like water utilities, power utilities, you know, a lot of the return there comes from income and you have a lot of visibility into those future income streams. Um, also, for a lot of these utilities, if their costs increase due to inflation, they can pass that increase in cost along to the end consumer. And so not only do you get income from these assets, but you also get inflation protection. On the other side of the coin in infrastructure are things like GDP-sensitive assets, trade terminals, airports, shipping ports, so on and so forth. These are going to generate more uh, return from or a more balanced return profile and, and lean a little bit more on capital appreciation as opposed to the other side that derives most of its return from income. But again, as the global economy comes back online, those 
those assets are are beginning to reprice quite nicely. And I would just add that on the regulated utility and the contracted asset side, you know, the wind has actually been at the back of, of some of those assets, given everybody's been stuck at home for the better part of the past year. Um, a natural segue from the conversation around trade ports and, and airports is in, into transportation. You know, transportation is a newer asset class. Transportation has actually benefited immensely from the pandemic because transportation costs have increased. Leasing costs for ships have increased. And that's another area where a lot of the return is derived from income. And this isn't just about owning big ships. It's about owning ships. It's about owning airplanes. It's about owning trucks. There's a lot of different pieces to the transportation universe. And I really think that the investment community broadly uh, has only begun to to scratch the surface here. And then, you know, finally, I would be remiss not to tip my cap to what's going on in the timber space, you know, as ESG becomes a bigger and bigger part, uh, particularly of institutional investment mandates, not only can things like timber provide income, inflation protection, and diversification, but they can also help offset one's carbon footprint, which is obviously a a growing focus amongst the corporate community more broadly. Well, well, speaking of carbon footprints, I guess uh, another aspect of alternatives has always been commodities, which uh, sometimes have a very heavy carbon footprint. Uh, But commodities have been particularly used as a hedge against inflation in the past. And with inflation now running so hot, um, how do you feel about using commodities as a hedge against inflation at this point? So to, to me, commodities can still be thought of as an effective hedge against inflation. But, but I, would, I would make uh, you know, one, one point alongside that. There are certain individuals out there in cert, certain research shops that are calling for another commodity super cycle like we saw in the early 2000s. And while I do believe that commodities can provide inflation protection going forward, I, I don't necessarily think that you know commodities can continue to increase in price broadly uh, the way that we've seen here over the course of the past 12 or, 12 or so months. And, and the reason why, and I think you know, oil is, is a great example of this, we are a world awash in oil. You know, if you asked me with WTI at $80 today whether the path of least resistance was up or down, I would probably say down. Because I think a big part of the reason why oil prices have risen here, the fracking community in the United States has only just begun to start pumping again. And so supply hasn't come back online fully, and that has supported the price of oil. And so you know, we, we think that if inflation persists, which as you noted, David, we do think inflation is going to be a little bit sticky, commodities can provide an effective hedge, uh, but commodities are not going to be a silver bullet for your portfolio in, in a higher inflation environment. The final point I make about commodities is we do believe in a diversified approach, but there's one area in particular that is of of particular focus going forward, and that's the industrial metal space and particularly the the space of copper. Um, If you look at copper as an input into things like wind turbines, electric vehicles, it is an essential ingredient in in those various industries. And so for people that, again, are are looking forward, maybe they're a little bit more focused on ESG, oftentimes people look to industrial metals and they say, ooh, well, well, those those must be kind of dirty. We actually think the role that copper will continue to play here going forward will be significant uh, as part of this broader energy transition. Interesting. I think it's it's an important sort of mind uh, experiment to think about commodities as an environmentally friendly investment as opposed to one that might damage the invest, uh, the environment. Um, are there any particular alternatives you wouldn't use as a hedge against inflation? 
So we, we do have a lot of clients suggest to us that things like cryptocurrencies and more specifically Bitcoin uh, can be an effective hedge against inflation. But you know we, we've done a lot of work on this and, and we really don't see it. Um, everybody has gotten very caught up in, in the enthusiasm and the fanfare around crypto broadly and, and some of the more liquid tokens in particular. But what we've found from a portfolio construction perspective is that figuring out how these assets fit into a portfolio is, is actually very challenging. Because if you subscribe to a mean variance optimization framework, there are effectively three inputs that matter. You need to have some sort of expected return, some sort of expected correlation or covariance, and some sort of expected volatility. And you know, expected return, well, you know, digital assets, cryptocurrencies, they're only worth what somebody will give you for it. So I don't really feel comfortable forecasting return for, for these types of investments. When it comes to correlation and covariance, I think this is, this is where it gets really complicated. And we actually show in our guide to alternatives how the correlation between five-year, five-year forward inflation expectations and the price of Bitcoin fluctuates over time. And the relationship there is very unstable. And so the reality is sometimes cryptocurrencies move with inflation, sometimes they don't. Uh, and that makes, again, thinking of them as an inflation hedge and furthermore, sizing the position uh, a very difficult exercise. And then again, you know, volatility, the annualized volatility of Bitcoin over the past 10 years has been more than 250 um, percent. I can't tell you what that's going to be going forward. I do think as institutional participation increases, that volatility will come down. But again, I'm not sure that this is a, a silver bullet when it comes to hedging against inflation. And furthermore, thinking about these assets as part of a broader portfolio uh, is very complicated, given that the three main inputs uh, are so difficult to forecast in the current environment. You know, we talk about uh, uh, ways of hedging against inflation, hedging against cert certain risks. But I think the, you know, the history of the 21st century is very much of a history of unexpected risks and things that, that really knock markets for, for, for a loop, which we really could not have anticipated. You, know, you hedge against a known risk, you diversify against unknown risks. Um, if that's the case, then how can alter, uh, alternatives help in portfolio diversification? So I, I think that there, there are a couple of things to, to note there. And I would come back to what I said at the very beginning, which is that investing in alternatives really requires an outcome-oriented approach. And, and so we do recognize that, again, things like core real assets, real estate, infrastructure, transportation, even certain types of hedge fund strategies have exhibited low to no correlation with traditional stocks and bonds over the course of the past, call it 15 to 20 years. But not only can alternatives help diversify against traditional stocks and bonds, they can also help diversify one another. Again, private equity is very different from real estate, which is very different from distressed credit, uh, which is very different from timber. And so you know, alternatives are, are very unique in the sense that not only can they help enhance return, not only can they help generate income and provide additional diversification relative to a, say, traditional 60-40 portfolio, they can also diversify one another. But I, I, would, I would end on, on this. When it comes to alternatives, manager selection is of the utmost importance. When we look at manager dispersion in things like private equity, venture capital, private credit, it is multiple times wider than what we see in publicly traded stocks and bonds. And so, you know, not only is selecting the right asset important for achieving whatever you're trying to do in your portfolio, but selecting the right manager 
is extremely important as well. And again, allocating to alternatives, we think it's something that's going to continue to, to grow here going forward. Um, but it is a complicated endeavor uh, and requires significant due diligence on the part of the investor. And so the path least resistance, I think, is more alts in portfolios, but it's going to be a, uh, a very complicated process. Well, thank you, David. I mean, I think the I think the message, this has been very enlightening in terms of uh, talking about some of the different aspects of alternatives. Uh, in this environment, uh, you know, I often think that there really is no alternative to alternatives as a way of adding to a portfolio return and portfolio diversification. So really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us, David. And thank you all for listening. Please tune into our next episode, where I'll be joined by Karen Ward, Chief Market Strategist for Europe at JP Morgan Asset Management, for discussion on our outlook for Europe and the UK in this post-pandemic environment. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass.